Well, thank you, Chris, for reminding us that the very reason that we're gathering here today in this even unique situation is because of the old rugged cross. It is the one thing that makes the difference. Well, today is Palm Sunday, so I would love for you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning uh, to the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Matthew as we return to that passage of Scripture as we do on this Sunday each and every year that we call the triumphant entry of Christ. While you're turning, I want to take a moment to kind of set this up for us. Jesus has his eyes set on Jerusalem because the time had come for the very purpose of his coming. A purpose that Paul reminds us in Ephesians, his letter to the Christians in Ephesus, was determined before the Lord even laid the foundations of the world. The purpose was this, that he, Jesus, who knew no sin, would become sin for us so that in him we could be made the righteousness of God. And so in this passage of scripture, Jesus' heart is set on Calvary. As he is moving towards Jerusalem, he's riding on a young colt that the disciples had borrowed by his instructions, and a great crowd began to develop around him. The scripture tells us that they were laying their coats down in front of him. They were laying palm branches down in front of him. In other words, they were more or less treating him as the king without even realizing that he truly was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But obviously in their heart, in their mind, in their life, they knew that there was something incredibly special about this one called Jesus. And there was a lot of energy that was in that crowd as well. A lot of excitement. The scripture says that they were uh, exuberant in their celebration. And they were shouting out. And the scripture tells us in Matthew 21 and in verse 9 that they were shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As I was trying to use a little sanctified imagination uh, in terms of recreating this scene in my own mind, I began to think of the excitement and energy that they had would be something similar to the excitement and energy among fans when their uh, football team would score the, the winning touchdown in the last seconds of a ball game. Uh, for instance, for my Clemson friends, it was when Deshaun Watson hit uh, Hunter Renfro in the end zone to beat Alabama and to win the national championship. Or all of my fellow Gamecocks, that play that we now call the fade, uh, when Eric Kimry threw that pass to Jamel Kelly against Mississippi State, last seconds, and he caught it to win. That type of excitement and that type of energy cannot not be expressed. You're going to express it. And this is what was happening in the lives of uh, these people as they were gathered around Christ. There was this level of excitement and energy and celebration uh, because something had radically happened that had brought that up into their life. And they were expressing it. They could not not share what was going on in their heart. Well, as I recreated that scene in my own heart and mind, a simple question came up. Why? 
And so I asked the Lord to just show me why these people had gotten to that point. And here's what he revealed to me, and I want to share it with you. Here's the word he gave to me to share with you today. First of all, he revealed to me that this was a time of darkness for them. For instance, when you look at their life, just in terms of society itself, they were living at that time under uh, the Roman rule. And the Roman Empire in that day and time was obviously one of the most brutal, one of the most oppressive empires. Uh, Daniel, in his prophecy and talking about the coming Roman Empire, talked about it being dreadful and terrifying that they would go forth to uh, just to destroy and to devour people. And so they lived under this this force of power and this force of fear every day of their life. And so just from a society point of view, they, they were in a time of darkness in their life. But then the Lord revealed to me another thing. Not only that they lived under Roman rule, but they also lived under religious rule. Now we're talking about God's people, the God of heaven and of earth, We're talking about the people that we generally refer to as the chosen people. And they had special spiritual advantages that a lot of other people didn't have. For instance, think about it with me. They had, first of all, the Torah, the law of God. Sometimes it's referred to as the law of Moses because God gave this to them through Moses. But this was the, thus saith the Lord. And the Torah involved incredible principles of life, wisdom in terms of precepts of how to live life, promises he had made to them that they could embrace by faith. And so here they were with the Torah, the law of God. And with that, not only the Torah, but they also had the teachings of the prophets as well. Prophets that were given to them by God to proclaim uh, the word, to encourage them and to uh, edify them, but also explain to them what the consequences were if they did not follow the law, did not follow the Torah, and also to promise them, to prophesy that there was a coming Messiah, a Messiah that would ultimately be their deliverer. And so they had the Torah, they had the teachings of the prophet, and they had the temple. And the temple was a place where God literally in the innermost court of the temple would manifest his Shekinah glory. And so here you have incredible spiritual opportunities with the Torah, the teachings of the prophet, and the temple, a place where they could express their faith and their trust in God. And yet something was missing. Something was wrong. They had an elaborate religion, but they were missing the one thing they needed the most, and that was a relationship with the God of the Torah and the teachings of the prophet and of the temple. Jesus expressed their spiritual condition for us over in in Matthew chapter 15. Let me share that with you. Matthew chapter 15 and and in verse 8. And this is what he said about the people that he was there ministering to. He said, this people, and he's quoting, by the way, the prophet Isaiah himself. But he said, this people 
honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. And what God wants of us most of all is our heart. Oh, they had religion. They had an elaborate religion, the most elaborate religion of that day. But they had put their faith in their religion, not in a relationship with the God of their religion. And so they actually were living in spiritual blindness, which would mean spiritual darkness. So this was a time of darkness for them. Both because in society they lived under Roman rule, but also spiritually because they lived under religious rule and they desperately needed a deliverer. Well, then came Jesus. And this time of darkness became a time of deliverance for them. Jesus radically impacted their lives. Think about it with me for a moment. He, 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 he impacted their lives, first of all, because he enlightened them with his messages. He, he brought them three things. As he began to share the word with them, he brought them, first of all, he brought them light. The scripture says they listened in awe as he began to explain the real truth about the kingdom of God, as he began to explain the principles and the precepts and the promises of the Torah and the teachings of the prophet and, and the reason of his glory, his, the manifestation of his presence in the temple, the scripture says that their hearts burn within. Lights begin to come on. They begin to understand truth about the God that they had been expressing their faith in but did not have a relationship with. And so the lights were coming on and their hearts were beginning to understand. And so through his messages, he enlightened them. He brought them light. He also brought them love. You see, the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and priests had just beaten them down through the years emphasizing the wrath of God and the anger of God if they did not fulfill to a T the rules and regulations they had added to Scripture thinking they were enhancing their religion. And all of a sudden Jesus says, God loves you. And he not only says to them, God loves you, but in that one verse, John three sixteen, we know so well he didn't just say that God loves you. He said God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so for the first time, they began to understand that, that the God of heaven and earth is not just some God of wrath and some God of anger, but this is a God of compassion and it's a God of mercy and it's a God of love. Is that given to us in the Old Testament? Yes. But they have been so beaten down with the religion of the wrath of God and the anger of God that this word was so fresh to them. And so he brought them light and he brought them love. And he brought them life. As Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, and in essence was saying, Nicodemus, this is in John 3, 3. And I'm putting this in my own words. But he says, Nicodemus, you don't, you don't need more rules and regulations. You, you don't need more religion. What you need is a rebirth. You need to be born again. 
You need to be born into the family of God. This is why the scripture says in John chapter 1 and, and in verse 12. And, and I just want to read that uh, to you. Just remind you of these in, incredible words. But he, here's what the scripture says. It says, but as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so Jesus impacted them. He enlightened them with his message. He brought them light and he brought them love and he brought them life, a, a new life that involved a a relationship with God, not just a religion, but something that was real, something that radically would change their life. And so he impacted them through his messages, but he also energized them with his miracles. All through his ministry, he demonstrated incredible authority, authority over diseases, as he went about just healing the sick. His authority over disabilities, he gave sight to the blind, he gave new bodies to those who were crippled. He, he demonstrated even authority over death itself, raising people from the dead just days earlier to this incredible event that we're looking at right here. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. Here a man who had been dead for four days his body was in full decay by this time and yet Christ was able to stand before that grave and with the authority that only God could have, cry out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus walked out of that grave alive. Certainly we began to understand now the answer to the question, why? They had been so impacted, enlightened by the messages of Jesus and energized by the miracles of Jesus that they began to understand this man must be the Messiah, our deliverer. And we see that in their words when we go back to our text and, and they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna means rescue. It means save. It means savior. In other words, they were declaring, you are our savior. You are our rescuer. You are the Messiah. You have come to deliver us. So they recognized in this time of darkness, this was a time of deliverance. And they were right. But did they understand that he had come to deliver them from their sin? That was the question. And whenever there is a time of deliverance, this was also going to be a time of decision. Not just for them, but it's always a time of decision for us as well. Jesus always demands a decision to make a choice. Not just half-hearted choice, that's not acceptable. Not sort of making a commitment to him, that's not acceptable. But he does demand a choice. You might remember Joshua stood before all the people of Israel there in the land of promise and he declared to them, it's found in Joshua chapter 24 and, and in verse 15 and it said, choose you this day 
whom you're going to serve. And then he answered that in the latter part of that verse by saying, for me and my house, we choose to serve the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, if you're not with me, you're against me. And so being half-hearted is not acceptable. Sort of embracing him is not acceptable. I couldn't help but wonder as I visualized this huge crowd. Obviously at that moment, at that time, they were all in when he came to Christ. They believed he was the Messiah. But then I began to wonder, how many in that crowd that day was in the crowd before Pilate shouting, crucify, crucify, crucify. How many in that crowd that day may were part of the crowds that Jesus spoke to after his resurrection? I began to wonder how many in that crowd that day maybe were part of all those on the day of Pentecost when God opened up heaven and he poured out his Holy Spirit and Peter proclaimed that incredible word about Christ. I wonder if there was any in that crowd that day was there on the day of Pentecost and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit brought back to them the light and the love and the life that they had heard of when they heard Jesus teach them about the kingdom of God. And they became part of that 3,000 accepted Christ that day and the church being birthed. I don't have the answer to those questions because I don't know who were in those other crowds. But I do know this. Nothing has changed. We all have a decision to make just like they did on that day and the days ahead. What are you going to do with Jesus, the Son of the living God? When there's a time of darkness and there's a time of deliverance, there will always be a time of decision. And what I've learned from God's Word is that God offers us two choices. First of all, if you desire, you can ask the Lord for a fair trial. And God being perfectly holy and righteous and just, he will give you exactly what you ask for. You can reject what Christ has done for you and say, Lord God, I just want to put all of my focus on a fair trial on the day of judgment. And you will receive that. I counsel you not to ask for that. Because unless you can prove that you are as perfectly holy and righteous and pure as God himself, you will be found guilty. You have another choice. You can accept a full pardon. You don't have to ask for a fair trial. You can accept a full pardon that is offered to you by Christ. That's the very purpose. That's why his eyes were set on Jerusalem. His heart was set on Calvary. That's why the old rugged cross makes the difference. It's because God offers a full pardon to whosoever will believe in him. That is, commit their life to him by receiving him as their personal 
Lord and Savior. And when we do, when any man, woman, boy, or girl, takes that step and receives Christ, he begins that day to continually pour into your life his light and his love and his life. And so on this day, even in the uniqueness of our situations, even in the midst of this crisis, there's still this truth. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He can be your deliverer. And I hope you will choose him today if you have not to this point. Let's pray. So, Father God, we thank you afresh and anew just for the depth and the height and the width of your love. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to fulfill that purpose and nothing was going to lead you astray because this was determined before the laying of the foundations of the world. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are willing to be that perfect atonement, eternal atonement for our sins. So Lord God, through your word, to everyone, Lord, that is listening even now, if they have not taken that step, oh Lord, right there in their home, wherever they may be, speak to their heart, Lord. And may this day in this unique situation be a day of deliverance for them forever. Receiving you, Lord Jesus, as their personal Lord and Savior. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. And may God's favor be upon you this coming week.